Welcome to Dojo Discussions. I'm your host, J.M. Smith, and the purpose of this podcast series is to provide answers to commonly asked questions that listeners send in. Uh, We do this via Facebook live stream, and then the audio is pulled and compiled and added to our podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have questions on anything related to God, the Bible, faith, culture, ethical issues, politics, anything like that, anything you've ever just wondered about, feel free to send those. Go to www.decipher.com. DiscipleDojo.org. You can submit questions through the contact page there. One of the questions that someone submitted when I asked for questions that people had about the Bible, faith, science, culture, politics, anything basically um, of a spiritual nature, one of the questions that somebody asked, this was from Julia, she, my Brazilian Jiu Jitsu friend Julia, she asked, Why do so many Christians refuse to accept science? even for saving lives. For example, Jehovah's Witness won't allow blood transfers or organ donations, etc. And that's a great question. Um, Why is it? So there's a couple of questions that are packed in to that one question. So why why do Christians not accept science is one question. And then within that broader question is kind of another category. Why, in particular, don't Jehovah's Witness allow blood transfusions or organ donations, which save lives? So those are two questions, and I want to unpack those somewhat separately, but in light of Scripture. Uh, The first part of the question, why don't Christians accept science? That would depend on a number of definitions. Who do you mean by Christians? And what science are you referring to? Because those are two massively broad concepts. Remember, Christian can refer to anyone from uh, Catholic to evangelical to Orthodox. Within those, there's things like Pentecostal. Uh, there's things like uh, Assemblies of God, Baptist, um, Amish. <laughs> you know, like there's a whole spectrum of Christians and what that means. So it's not a monolithic term. That's the one thing to keep in mind. It's not a monolithic term when you say, why don't Christians dot, dot, dot. Uh, There are very few things that all Christians everywhere take a a single-minded approach to. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Um, And even among Christians, like, so for instance, I'm uh, part of the United Methodist Church. So I'm a Protestant Christian, but the United Methodist Church, even though right now we're kind of in flux deciding which way we're going to go as a denomination, uh, there, there are mainline Christians, mainline United Methodists, that would be all for everything that anybody scientifically literate says, even over the Bible. And then there are conservative uh, or more evangelical Methodists who would say, well, wait a minute, the Bible's the authority, and then science needs to come in and and help fill that out. And there's a whole range of positions in between those. So, And that's just in one denomination. That's just in mine, in United Methodist. So uh, the question itself, why don't Christians accept science? That's a broad question, and one that Disciple Dojo, the, this ministry, we actually have a whole course. It was It was filmed years ago, but it's available free on our website. The entire course is free. Um, It's called, and again, sorry for the mirroring, but flip this around, take a screenshot, whatever. The course that we offer, it's a free course on disciplodojo.org. 
and you go on the, the uh, train the spirit link at the top of the page, drop down menu videos, and it's called the Bible and science friends or foes. Um, this is an entire course that I taught at a church in Georgia and we recorded it years ago, but the course walks through the history of Christianity and science. And in particular, where the conflicts arose, where the tensions arose. And we unpack it in that course, we unpack it in light of the creation account of Genesis 1. And we look at issues like astrophysics and um, paleontology and geology and biology, evolutionary biology, all of those things. So that's, that's like a whole area in and of itself. I just wanted to focus today, though, on the second part of Julia's question, the subset, uh, the example she gave. Which was so, you know, for example, why do, Christian, why do Christians refuse to accept science, even if it'll save lives? For example, Jehovah's Witness don't allow blood transfers or organ donation. So that question now, why don't Jehovah's Witness and other groups like that that have a similar view, why don't they allow blood transfusions, organ donations? Um, you know, you could, you could spin this, uh, or this would be related to why do some charismatic Christians uh, not believe in, in medicine doctors. And they say, you should only pray. You know, there've been cases where kids have died because they've, the parents have said, no, we, we're going to, we're only going to believe in prayer and not going to take medicine because that's seen as a lack of faith. So I want to tease those two things out because there's a specific reason why Jehovah's witness refuse blood transfusions. And then there's a larger reason why other Christian groups shy away from things uh, like vaccines or um, you know scientific advances, certain medicines or things like that. They're, those again are two different issues. Um, there's a fun. There's there's something called folk theology. So folk theology is beliefs that people pick up that are not found in scripture among Christians. There's folk Muslim theology, there's um, folk Buddhist, there's folk Hinduism. I, as a Christian, am speaking about folk Christian theology. And folk Christian theology is the stuff that people just pick up throughout their lives. They heard it from a preacher, they saw it on TV, uh, they read it somewhere. They, the, folk theology is just kind of the stuff that gets imbibed unintentionally. St. Peter at the pearly gates, like an old guy with a beard sitting in the gates of heaven, letting people in. That's folk theology. There's nothing even remotely like that taught in scripture. Satan having horns and cloven hooves and a pitchfork. Folk theology. That's not found in the Bible. Uh, Satan's name being Lucifer. Folk theology. That's not actually taught in the Bible. And, and, and there are more examples like this, tons of examples like this. One of those examples of folk theology is that science and medicine in particular are antithetical to faith. That's a total folk theology that somehow if you, if you, if you use scientific advancements, you are negating your faith in God. The Bible never teaches that. It never teaches that. It teaches the opposite. In fact, when Luke, uh, when Paul was writing to his young protege, Timothy, Timothy was having stomach problems because there wasn't clean water back in the Greco-Roman world at the time. And people had stomach problems just like they do today, waterborne illnesses and things like that. And there were different remedies. One of the things people would do to help combat uh, gastrointestinal or, or waterborne problems, illnesses that they had, was they would drink wine instead of water. 
and it was diluted down wine by our standards, but uh, that was one of the things is because wine wouldn't have the contaminants, the bacteria, the things that water could have, waterborne pathogens were not as prevalent in wine. And so people would drink wine instead of water. Paul actually tells Timothy when he's writing to him, he's telling him, you know, giving him directions for churches, giving him directions on how to live. And then there's this throwaway line. And he says, by the way, stop drinking only water. Take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent illnesses. That's Paul telling Timothy, hey, don't just drink water. You need to take something for your stomach. Drink some wine. That's ancient medicine. Uh, Paul didn't say, hey, Timothy, your stomach bothering you? Pray more about it. Uh, don't take any medicine. Just pray about it. He never said that. Flat up tells him, take some wine. Drink some wine for your stomach. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So the largest chunk of writing in the New Testament, Luke and Acts, are two volumes of a large one-volume work. And they're written by Luke, who is a doctor. Luke was a physician. So the idea that Christianity and medicine are inextricably at odds with each other is folk theology. It's not true. Christianity has never been anti-medicine. Many of the medical advances and scientific advances came from clergy or scientists who were churchmen, who were researching and studying as part of their view of this is a universe created by a God of order, not a God of chaos. We're not at the whims of arbitrary, capricious spirits that we have to somehow appease. We, we are children of a living God who created an orderly universe that can be explored through scientific discovery. There's so much of science that comes from the, the Judeo-Christian cultural milieu that it is utterly folk theology to say that the two are at odds. Now, in popular consciousness, that's a stereotype, and it's one that I fight against regularly or try to. That's why Disciple Dojo has the free course, Bible and Science, Friends or Foes, because so many people assume, either because they've heard it from skeptics who are trying to belittle the faith, you know, through memes and online message boards and, and taking pot shots at the absolute dumbest of the dumb among Christians, uh, or they've heard it from well-meaning but ignorant and dangerously uninformed pastors or teachers telling them things like, don't go to counseling, just pray harder. You don't need that medicine. You need Jesus. Uh, you know, if you give your child this treatment, if you let your child undergo this surgery, you're showing a lack of faith because God told me he's going to heal your child. All of that, all of that is, is folk theology. Scripture never pro prohibits, and it actually encourages the advancement of learning about the world, scientific advancement, medical advancement. So there's no conflict between the two in a responsible Christian worldview. Now, there may be medical reasons or there may be scientific reasons for, for shying away from certain things that are all the rage. You know, in the 19th century, uh, and especially in the early 20th century, one of the main uh, theories among all of the scientific elite intelligentsia in the world was eugenics. The belief that you could breed out undesirable qualities from people by isolating um, unfit genetic bloodlines and only letting those who were fit, which usually meant white European, be the ones who breed. 
this was this was accepted by giants in the field of humanities, of politics, of science. I mean, everyone from the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, to Adolf Hitler, was a fan of eugenics. And there were Christian writers at the time who were like, "Pump the brakes! Whoa, this is not good." You know, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, these guys were saying that this is not a good thing. This is this is science perverted. And so there's something to keep in mind that there can, there is such a thing as bad science. And so anything just done in the name of science is not a reason to wholeheartedly embrace it. But because of the nature of the scientific ex- enterprise, uh, and it relies on things like peer-reviewed uh, research, falsification, testable, repeatable claims. I mean, these are things that built the scientific method and that have made it generally reliable uh, and that's the reason that you're able to even hear this discussion because of scientific advancements that have happened. So Christians have always been at the forefront of scientific advancement, but there have also been Christians who have always been the radical skeptics when it comes to scientific advancements. And the modernists and the scientists controversy, modernists and the fundamentalist controversy of the 1800s and early 1900s is a great example. And we talk a lot about that in the course, Bible and Science, Friends or Foes. So those of you that are just jumping on, the course I'm referring to, it's free on the Disciple Dojo website. It's called The Bible and Science, Friends or Foes. And this gives more of a broader background. But I want to get into, because we're not going to, this isn't going to be as long as as a typical weekly dojo discussion session, about an hour. We're going to try to go shorter on this one because it's a a focused question. Why don't Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and I want to include other folk Christian groups in that, why don't they allow blood transfusions? Um, It's first thing to keep in mind, Jehovah's Witness is technically uh, an offshoot of Christianity. It's a a sect that arose late 1800s, early 1900s, um, uh, after some failed predictions of the end of the world and a group called the Millerites. Um, and, and And it started as a millennial cult. That, that at the millennium, certain things were going to happen. And those things didn't happen. And so they had to pivot and spin it as, you know, well, we got it wrong, but we're still kind of right. And that gave rise to, you know, the Watchtower Society, Jehovah's Witness. And Jehovah's Witness, you have to understand, are not representative of Orthodox Christianity, mainline Christianity, or even Protestant Christianity. Jehovah's Witness have their own Bible translation. The New World Translation is a Jehovah's Witness produced, Watchtower publication of the Bible, and it is specifically and doctrinally slanted in places to teach specific theology of Jehovah's Witness. So that's the thing to keep in mind. We want to just kind of lump everyone together, but again, within Christendom, if this is the mainstream, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, then there are offshoots that are outside of that, Latter-day Saints, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, um, Seventh-day Adventists, kind of right on the border. There's a question about whether they're Orthodox or, or a sect. Um, so keep that in mind. Jehovah's Witness are, are a very specific type offshoot that claim to be part of the Christian faith, but reject doctrinal Orthodox Trinitarian Christian theology. Uh, so they have a very different understanding of Jesus. They have a very different understanding of the nature of the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the kingdom of God. There, there's so much to get into. And I'm not an expert on Jehovah's Witness because I don't spend my time studying Jehovah's Witness beliefs or, or cult beliefs or doctrinal views of different sects. 
Um, but I know enough, at least, to answer this question in light of Scripture. Why don't Jehovah's Witness allow blood transfusions? Basically, the answer comes down to Jehovah's Witness believe that getting blood put into your body in any way, shape, or form is the equivalent of eating blood. They point to the Bible's prohibition in the Old Testament. We'll look at some of these passages about eating blood. And they say, therefore, we extrapolate that. Not only that you're not allowed to eat blood or drink blood, but you're not even allowed to put it in your body. So a blood transfusion is the equivalent in the modern day of eating blood. We don't allow it. Organ transplant, which require blood transfusions, you're taking in, you're, you're ingesting blood. It's forbidden. So that's, that's the short answer. Why don't they do it? Now, where do they pull these ideas from? Well, they start back in Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, after the flood of Noah, Noah and his family come off the ark, God gives them the prohibition against murder. Like, you will not murder, and if anybody who does murder, their blood will be shed in, in retribution. And it goes on, Genesis 9, verse 3 and 4 says, um, Every moving thing that lives shall be for you as food. As I have gave the green plants to you, which happened back in the Garden of Eden, now I give you everything. In other words, humans are now allowed to be uh, omnivorous, at least specifically said you can be omnivorous. Verse 4 of Genesis 9, only you shall not eat flesh with the blood in it. Now that is just kind of left there, and it's not really unpacked other than because the blood represents the life of someone or something. And this is a theme you see in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the covenant that God made with Israel. Blood was symbolic of life. That's why shedding blood, the punishment for that was to have your blood shed because you spilled the life essence of another. Therefore, you have forfeited your own life essence. This is also why you weren't allowed to ingest or eat blood because blood was seen as the, the representation of the life of the sacrificial animal. And that part, along with the fat, blood and fat, we'll see in a minute, were to be devoted entirely to God, either in a sacrificial ritual or poured out, discarded on the ground to go back into the earth or to be you know, consumed by animals or creation. But they weren't to be ingested by people within the covenant people of Israel. That was the understanding. So Leviticus chapter 3 is talking about sacrifices. And God says at the end in verse 17, this is a lasting statute for your generations and all your dwellings. In other words, wherever you're going to live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. This is a command to the Israelites. I don't know if Jehovah's Witness cut all the fat off their steaks. Um, honestly, that's a question I thought of when I was getting ready to do this. I was like, I wonder if they... Because, I, I mean, I just ate a pot roast that I made, and there was a good bit of fat in the meat. And I'm like, ah, what did Jehovah's Witness do with that? Uh, I mean, I know my interpretation, which we'll get to later, but, but what did they think? Anyway, ask your Jehovah's Witness friends, do you guys cut all the fat off your meat and, and dissect it all out, or do you consume any fat? Because Leviticus 3 says you must not eat any fat or any blood. Leviticus 7 God's uh, telling Israel about how the, they, again, the commandments in Leviticus 
go to the Disciple Dojo podcast or our YouTube channel, and you can. We spent a whole year teaching through Leviticus, so you can either through podcast form or video form, you can watch a walkthrough chapter by chapter of the entire book of Leviticus. It's called Leviticus, aka the book Christians usually skip but shouldn't. We spent a long time going through all these passages in detail, but so that's just background. If you want more, in in chapter seven, God says. Or Leviticus 7, 22, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelites saying, you must not eat any fat of ox or sheep or goat. And those are the sacrificial animals and a dead body's fat or mangled carcasses fat may not may be used for any purpose. So you can use the fat of different animals, like for things like um, lubrication or burning for fuel, or there are certain shepherding practices that have to do with animal husbandry where they would use fat for certain things. And God's like, you can do that, but you must not eat it. Verse 25, when anyone eats from the domestic animal from which he presented as an offering made by fire to Yahweh, then that person who ate shall be cut off from his people. In other words, if you try to eat what should be offered to me, you're cut off from the covenant people of Israel. And in any of your dwellings, you must not eat any blood belonging to birds or domestic animals. Any person who eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. So within Israel, no eating of fat, no eating of blood. That was the rule. That was part of their dietary, what would today we would say keeping kosher. Leviticus 17. God says, if there's anyone from the house of Israel or an immigrant who is dwelling in their midst who eats any blood, then I will set my face against the person who eats the blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. Indeed, the flesh's life is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives, because it's the blood with the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may the immigrant who is dwelling in your midst eat blood. So again, this prohibition for the Israelites in under the Mosaic Covenant was blood equals life, you're not to eat life, so drain the blood. You can eat the flesh, you can eat the meat, you can have sustenance, but there is symbolic and theological meaning to the blood of an animal that's been sacrificed that I am trying to preserve in all of these laws. There's a concept. See, that's what Old Testament laws did. These, these dietary laws, these ceremonial laws, these purity laws. And we talk about all of that in the Leviticus study. So again, hop on the Disciple Dojo YouTube or Disciple Dojo podcast and, and go through our Leviticus study because we unpacked it all over the course of a year. But the main concept was blood and other things, like in this case, fat. They, in the context of Israel, they have specific meaning and specific symbolism. And so God, for centuries, was hammering into his people, you shall live this way. And some of the rules to us today, we don't keep them. They seem arbitrary. They seem strange. They seem archaic. They seem outdated. Christians don't keep them anyway. Um, I mean, I love bacon-wrapped shrimp. Well, that's two strikes against me if I were a, a kosher-keeping, uh, Mosaic Covenant Hebrew. But Christians today live under a different ethic. And at the end of this, we'll kind of point towards why that's the case. Um, but let me, there's two more passages of scripture I want to look at. So no eating blood has come from Genesis nine. It's come from Leviticus three, Leviticus seven, Leviticus 17, and then Deuteronomy chapter 12. This is repeating the covenant to the next generation who came out of Egypt, who were babies when they came out of Egypt and their parents died in the desert. They're the new generation that are going to go into the promised land. God repeats the covenant to them. And this is what he says he, in all of Deuteronomy. That's what the whole book is. Our Disciple Dojo study on Deuteronomy 
where we spend a year going through that book is also available at the podcast or on our YouTube channel. But in chapter 12, God said in verse 15, whenever you desire, whatever, wherever you desire, you may slaughter and you may eat meat according to the blessing of Yahweh your God that he's given you in all of your towns. You know, so this is saying you, you, can, you can eat meat, livestock you raise, animals that you hunt. Now, there's certain meats you can't eat, and he had given that, the clean and the unclean and uh, specific things you could eat. But God's saying, but you, you can eat meat without having to offer it on the altar at the sanctuary um, because you're going to be dwelling in the land now. You're going to be spread out. You're not going to all be camped around the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now you're moving into national territory. So you can eat meat. You can slaughter it and eat it and butcher it wherever. Um, the, the unclean and the clean meat, just as they would the gazelle or the deer, you can eat it just like you would whatever you hunt. Verse 16, only the blood you must not eat, but on the ground you must pour it like water. So God puts this, this prohibition in the covenant to Israel. You are not to eat blood. You're not to because it has theological significance. And most Old Testament scholars say also because in the surrounding cultures of Israel, manipulating the blood of something, an animal or a person, in some magic way, in some incantation way, in some uh, pagan ways, was seen as having a supernatural effect. Doing something with the blood was seen as doing something in the spirit realm to people for good or for ill. So the reason for prohibiting God, prohibiting Israel from doing anything with the blood other than giving, offering it to him on the altar or pouring it out to him through creation was to prevent them. And a number of old Testament scholars argue this was to prevent them from engaging in even unintentionally syncretistic practices and so that's the prohibition was to keep Israel separate in, in, in their entire worldview from the nations around them, from the Canaanites, from the Egyptians, from the Mesopotamian cultures. So that was so strong in the Jewish mindset, it carried through all the way to the time of the New Testament. So that when we come to the New Testament, in the book of Acts, now what's happened is Jesus has come Jesus has inaugurated the new covenant. He's died. He's been buried. God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He has sent the Holy Spirit and has opened up the kingdom of God. The people of Israel now has been opened up to Gentiles, non-Jews who come to faith in God. So this is God's plan all along, even in the Old Testament, was non-Jews would be part of the people of Israel, the kingdom of God, through the new covenant and the Messiah. And, and that's the whole big picture Bible story. But there was a tension. You have all of these people coming to faith in Israel's Messiah, Jesus, but they're coming from Greco-Roman backgrounds. They're coming from Ethiopian backgrounds. They're coming from Arabian backgrounds. They're coming from Roman backgrounds. They don't have the prohibition against eating blood that Jews have always had as a people. So they do things that the Jews find distasteful find abhorrent. They don't keep kosher. And the church in Jerusalem had to get together and convene, and that's what Acts chapter 15 is, and say, okay, we've got people coming from um, non-Jewish backgrounds and becoming part of the people of Israel, the followers of Jesus, the followers of Messiah. What do we do with their eating practices and their sexual practices and their religious 
concepts? How do they live without them becoming full-fledged Jews and adopting the entire law of Moses and undergoing circumcision and, and living a kosher Jewish first century life because the church said, no, that's not needed anymore. That distinction has been broken down. So the church at Jerusalem gathered and they prayed and they sought the Holy Spirit and they listened to each other and the apostles and they sent a letter to the Gentile churches. And the letter that was sent out, this is Acts chapter 15, the letter that was sent out, it gives them a list of things that they're not supposed to do. And there's only four things they're not supposed to do. In order to be part of the people of God, they don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to keep all of the dietary laws. They don't have to obey all of the festivals or celebrate all the holidays. They don't have to become Jews if they're not already. They're free to. They're not prohibited from doing that, but they don't have to. And so the council says, it seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us to place on you no greater burden except these necessary things that you abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from blood. It links those two together, food sacrificed to idols and blood, which in the Old Testament world, and, and like we said, there was a link between idolatry and use or manipulation or ingesting of blood. And from what has been strangled, that is animals that have been strangled rather than sliced and drained of their blood. So this is all three, one way to say it, and uh, from, from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And he just uses that word porneia, which is where we get the word pornography from or pornographic. And it means basically any sex that's not between a husband and a wife. So anything outside of husband-wife sex is considered by the biblical writers porneia, would fall into that category by default. And Jesus and the Old Testament had prohibited those practices as well. So those are the things that they tell them. Look, Gentiles, these are the only things you have to do in order to be members of the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, God's reconstituted Israel around his Messiah. So Jehovah's Witness, they take all of these passages, but particularly the Old Testament passages, and they say, therefore, we as followers of Jesus are not allowed to eat blood. No problem. So far, so good. Then they take the next step, and this is where they leave Scripture behind. This is where they leave biblical theology and go into folk theology. They say, and the prohibitions against eating blood were based on the literal ingesting or putting blood into your body. And so in any way, shape, or form, we reject that. That's where you lost me, Jehovah's Witness. That's where you took a left turn. You see, the prohibitions in the Bible against eating blood were not about the taking in of blood molecules, hemoglobin, into the body. Because even if you strain meat, even if you drain all the blood, even if you do that, there's still going to be residue of hemoglobin, residue of blood in any meat that you eat. God's purpose wasn't uh, biological or molecular in those prohibitions. It was making a statement theologically. We are not going to eat the blood. We are not going to take in the life force. Because that's what people would do. If I take, I mean, even today, there are certain traditions. Like if you grew up hunting, you've probably just not even thought of it. But your first kill that you ever kill, like first deer you ever shoot, what is it? you drink the blood. Well, that's a practice that comes from a, a non-Christian worldview, believing that you are taking the life force of that animal into yourself and thereby becoming one with your prey, or or more attuned to the hunt, or showing reverence for the Creator Spirit, or whatever the concept is. But it's totally not a Christian concept. It's a very pagan concept. 
Now, whether you can or can't do that as a hunter, and if you're a Christian, that's a question for another time. But that kind of thing is what the eating of blood would be geared at, not blood transfusions, not uh, organ donations, transplants that can save lives. And we know this is the case because Jesus's own view. So here, here's where we'll come back to Jesus's own view of the Old Testament law was one that Jehovah's Witness and other folk Christians would do well to emulate. The Old Testament law, two examples Jesus used. The Old Testament law said, um, you sh- you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Okay, that is an ironclad principle of, of Torah Judaism. No work on the Sabbath. Now, it doesn't define exactly what constitutes work. And so oral traditions and, and uh, rabbis and, and, and uh, religious leaders over the years came up with all of these um, additions that they stacked on top of the Sabbath prohibition that would prevent people from accidentally working on the Sabbath. And so they came up with, you can take a journey of this many steps, but if you step more than that, that's a work and so you're not allowed to do that. You know, you can pick up something, but it can only be of a certain size because anything beyond a certain size, that will then constitute work. You're carrying something. can't do that. There were all these rules. These, these, they called it building a hedge around the Torah. These rules added on to the basic prohibition of you shall not work on the Sabbath. You were also, the law required, no work on Sabbath. It also required on the eighth day, every male child is to be circumcised. Well, the eighth day after a child's born can sometimes fall on the Sabbath. A lot of times can fall on the Sabbath. And so in that instance, you've got two laws that are at conflict. Keeping the Sabbath, no working, circumcising this child, which if you're a priest or a rabbi, that's work. What do you do? Jesus actually was condemned on a few occasions because he would heal people on the Sabbath. And so his, his adversaries would say, no, you're breaking the Sabbath. Two times Jesus mentions this. John 7, verse 22, Jesus says to the people who are critiquing him, you circumcise on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry with me because I made a whole man well on the Sabbath? Don't judge according to outward appearance. Make a righteous judgment. So Jesus says, look, you're upset. You're upset that I healed a whole man? but you will be intent on making sure the tiniest part, he's talking about circumcision, the tiniest part of the tiniest member of a newborn Hebrew baby, male, obviously, you will make sure that that gets taken care of on the Sabbath, but you're mad at me. I healed the whole man. I did way more than just snipping off a little bit of extra. So that's the principle Jesus is saying, even within the law, there are weightier and lighter matters. There are priorities even within the law. Matthew 12, same thing. Uh, Jesus went into a synagogue. Behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. This is in verse 9. They asked him, saying, is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him? In other words, these same type of people are kind of ambushing Jesus in the synagogue. Hey, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because healing is a work and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Um. But Jesus said to them, verse 11, but Jesus said to them, what man is there among you who would have one sheep? And if this one sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out. In other words, on the Sabbath, 
Torah-keeping Jews were allowed to save their animal if it fell into a pit. Pulling out an animal is work. Sheep aren't small little things. That's a big thing. Getting a sheep out of a pit or a ditch or a cistern that it had fallen into while it was grazing or looking for water, that takes work. I mean, watch some of these videos that the Dodo always posts on Facebook where they're rescuing, you know, a moose from a frozen lake or a dog from a ditch or, or so, you know, there's all these feel-good videos. I love them. I always hit love when I see those videos. Um, there's a reason that that's allowed. You're allowed to get an animal out of a ditch on the Sabbath and that's not considered breaking the Sabbath. So Jesus says, you already know this. How much more valuable are people than animals? How much more does God want us to heal on the Sabbath? Because healing brings life. It brings wholeness. And that's the irony. The irony of the Jehovah's Witness. We'll wrap it up here. The irony of the Jehovah's Witness prohibition against eating blood, even if it means saving life, Blood symbolizes the life and how precious it is. God always puts life above ritual in his commandments. Whenever life and ritual were in conflict, God always chooses life, endorses life. That's the whole point of what the ritual prescription prohibition was trying to show, was that life is important. Life has value. There is something sacred and precious to life. So if you're a, a Jehovah's Witness parent and your child needs a blood transfusion, get the blood transfusion. Save the life of your child. You're not violating scripture. You may be violating some interpretations that your church has put forth, but your church is wrong. Your church is wrong if it puts keeping, not getting a, a someone life-saving medical advancement that they need, medical surgery, blood transfusions, organ transplants. If your church says, no, you can't do that, why? Because the Old Testament and the New Testament says don't eat blood. No, those are two fundamentally different issues, not the same thing. So the short answer, yes, Jehovah's Witnesses do not accept blood transfusion. Some Christians do reject modern medicine. Some Christians are super skeptical about scientific claims. But hear me, they're wrong. According to Scripture, they don't have a leg to stand on. Whatever their arguments may be against those things on scientific grounds, you're free to discuss those as scientists are free to discuss those. But from a theological, biblical, ethical standpoint, there's no justification for not accepting life-saving medicine because of a prohibition against eating blood that's mentioned in Scripture. So I hope that answers the question, Julie. I know it's a longer, uh, longer than you probably expected, but this is an issue. Again, these dojo discussions are not just to give an answer. They are to unpack the why behind the answers. And so if you're, for anyone out there that's interested in following up on these discussions, again, I'm going to mention the course that we have, the Bible and Science, Friends or Foes. This is completely free at discipledojo.org, entirely free. You download this whole workbook, all of the resources, all of the handouts, everything, and you can print it out or you can do it on your tablet, entirely free because people support the ministry of Disciple Dojo financially. But in general, when you're thinking about 
uh, specifically about the issues that we talked about, what blood in the Old Testament. There's two resources I want to share for people that want to go deeper on this. Um, one is R.K. Harrison's Leviticus Commentary. Again, sorry for the mirroring. Um, Android just won't let me flip it. But R.K. Harrison's Leviticus Commentary and uh, Robert Vasholt's Commentary on Leviticus from the Mentor commentating series. So these are two Leviticus commentaries that walk you through the book of Leviticus. There are others that are good, but these are both easy and readable, and you don't have to know Hebrew or be a scholar to, and they're, they're relatively thin as well. So I recommend these. When you're wondering about, you come across a passage in the Bible and you're like, Whoa, what do, I don't understand this. What does this mean? How do I deal with this? There's a great resource that doesn't deal with all of them, but it deals with a lot of them. This is actually a former professor of mine, Walt Kaiser. He co-authored this, Hard Sayings of the Bible. This is an excellent book. It's a, it's a resource. You keep it on your shelf. But you would just, if you have a question about any passage in the Bible, you pull this down, look in it, and see. Because if there are issues where there are different interpretations, Kaiser and the others who edited this are good about presenting the different options. And then they'll say which they think is preferable. But this is a great resource excellent resource to have on your shelf and it's not very expensive. Last one, for understanding how the Old Testament laws relate to the New Testament. That's an issue that's really tricky. And we spent, we've spent years here at Disciple Dojo on the podcast and the YouTube videos where we teach through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We've spent a lot of time talking about how as Christians we deal with these books. Do we just pick and choose what laws we keep? Do we only keep the ones we like? Do we keep them all? Do, what do we do? So the, the best, the best resource in print, the best resource, hands down on this question, is Christopher Wright's book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. This is the best. It's, it's a fairly substantial volume, but the paperback, it's pretty cheap. Um, by far the best. This walks through what does the Old Testament mean for us as New Testament believers, as followers of Jesus who aren't under the law, but we don't throw away the law? What does it mean for us? So nobody does it better than Chris Wright. He's next to C.S. Lewis. He's my favorite writer ever. Um, <clears throat> I cannot recommend that book enough. So good question. Um, this is this was we're, we're about 45 minutes, so this is a little shorter than our typical hour. But I'm going to put this. I'm going to upload this on the podcast as well. I think Tuesday at noon, I think we're going to shoot for the next Dojo Discussions live stream. Tuesday at noon, we're going to, we've gotten some really good questions that listeners have submitted. If you want to ask a question, please email. The best way to do it is just through Facebook. Just post it in the comments section. Or you can find me on Instagram. Send it to me on Instagram, at number 7 just, just the number seven, not the word number. So James Michael seven on Instagram or here on Facebook, or, um, uh, you can also always go to discipledojo.org and click the contact link at the top of the page. And you can submit a question by the form that way. But, but that's the purpose is, is to just teach just to, to, to answer and walk through these questions with you guys while we're here during quarantine, COVID, lockdown, you know, refugee jitsu stopped, Ruth Chris teaching has stopped. So this is kind of my ministry outlet for the time being. So I want to use it to answer questions that you guys have that are good questions 
that are controversial questions. You can ask anything you want and we'll delve into it. So I haven't picked out, I've got like about half a dozen questions that people have submitted already. One of them will probably be what we address, but Tuesday at noon, tell folks about this, share this video, that's really helpful, and check out the resources, discipledojo.org. If you don't know what Disciple Dojo is, it's an online library of audio, video, and written resources that help you in discipleship, in, in following Jesus, in becoming um, deeper level of thinking, deeper level of engagement with things of the spirit. So you go to a regular dojo to train martial arts, to train your body. You come to Disciple Dojo, and we're going to help you train your spirit. You know, Because our bodies, you know, they get older and they, they deteriorate over time, but our spirit continues and throughout this entire life. So we can always be training our spirit, even when we can't train our bodies, um, especially during quarantine lockdowns. So guys, again, shoot your questions to me um, in any way possible. I'm happy to talk. If I, let me say this. If I don't know the answer, I'm not going to dodge the question. If I don't know the answer, I will say, I don't know the answer, but here are some things to think about in seeking an answer. That's, that's a commitment to you guys. There are too many people that just get on these Facebook live streams and just tell you their opinions. So I'm trying to, you'll, you'll always get my opinion, obviously. I mean, there's a reason I hold the view that I hold, but I'm going to try to always give more to undergird and like I did with these resources to point you guys in the direction where you then can go learn it on your own, absorb it on your own. You may end up disagreeing with me. Great. The best thing about a dojo is you go in there, you slap hands, you bump fists, and you roll, and you try to choke each other, or you try to break each other's arm, or you try to, I mean, that's what we do as jujitsu practitioners. Well, it's the same thing with, with ethics, theology, politics, with any discussion, is bring your A game. Come at each other in love. When I go to my dojo, when I go to Hensel Gracie Charlotte, we're not trying to injure each other, but we are trying to beat each other. For the purpose of making everyone better. So that's what these dojo discussions, uh, one of the goals I have is for us to, you know, make each other better. So feel free to disagree. Feel free to post comments and say, ah, I think you're full of crap, whatever. It's okay. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. Tuesday, 12 noon is when we're going to do the next live stream. So hopefully I'll see you then. Bring your friends, tell other people, and that's it. Y'all have a great rest of your weekend.